0: Welcome to Revenge of the Drive-In, the podcast where Jim and Patrick discuss a drive-in double feature randomly selected from a list of over 1,600 movies. Now, what is a drive-in film? Well, we're defining it as something that might be just below the mainstream, something from a genre that doesn't get the respect it deserves. These could be cult movies, midnight movies, giallos, slasher movies, exploitation flicks, erotic thrillers, etc. Or, these might just be movies that evoke the youthful spirit of Riven cinema of the 1950s and 1960s. I'm your host, Patrick, and I'm joined by... Jim. Alright, Jim, today we're talking about two movies. One, Dr. No, the first official James Bond movie. And the second one is Shocker, from director Wes Craven, the creator of A Nightmare on Elm Street.
1: Both fun movies, both enjoyable to watch. Uh, Had a good time watching them. But uh, I guess we should really talk about the elephant in the room before we get started. Uh, unfortunately, that's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah uh, Unfortunately, Sir Sean Connery passed away on October thirty first at the ripe old age of ninety. Uh, he died in the Bahamas, surrounded by his family, mm-hmm. and he passed away peacefully in his sleep. That's what all the news outlets are telling us, anyway. It's a bit of a shame, you know. He was he, he was such an iconic actor.
0: Yeah, incredible career. He will, of course, always be synonymous with James Bond.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what all the news uh, agencies are reporting him on. I think a lot of them are saying the first actor to bring James Bond to life or the first actor to bring ian fleming's james bond to life which is, is what he was and he will forever be remembered as that but he also was in a lot of other great movies i mean indiana jones hunt for the red october um, one of my personal favorites the league of extraordinary gentlemen okay he was in a lot of schlocky movies, I liked, but a lot of great movies i
0: always like the untouchables and great of course movie. he won an academy award for that
1: mm-hmm. yeah but it's a shame uh, he'll be missed and uh, i think hollywood has lost uh, an amazing star so rest in peace sir sean And,
0: uh, just a reminder before we get into the plots of these movies that we will be spoiling them, so if you would like to see them, please check them out before listening further here. But without much further ado, Jim, the bigger James Bond fan between the two of us, why don't you take her away with Dr. No?
1: Yeah, so Dr. No, uh, it came out in 1962, but quickly before we get into it, I just want to mention it was directed by a fellow named Terrence Young, uh, who directed three Bond movies... Uh, which were Dr. No from Russia with Love, which were the first two, and then the fourth one, Thunderball. Uh, And it was his idea to bring in Sean Connery to play 007 because he had worked with him in 1957 on a movie called Action of the Tiger.
0: Which is kind Um, of amazing considering we, you know, I think most people kind of think of Dr. No as being his first movie, and it it really was the movie that made him a star, but at the same time he appeared in a bunch of movies before that.
1: Yeah, and and before that he was a bodybuilder. So, yeah. (laughs) Apparently in the Mr. Universe contest of 1953 or 4 or something okay. like that. Yeah, he's not necessarily
0: but, uh, a young man when he plays Bond for the first time.
1: But yeah, so the movie opens with the now classic image of, of James Bond uh, walking into the gun barrel frame and turning and shooting. And the Bond theme then kind of comes on after that and plays to multicolored flashing squares and circles. And then the theme abruptly ends and is, it, it cuts to, what would you call it, calypso music or like Caribbean music?
0: Uh, Calypso, I think, is the genre.
1: Okay, yeah. So, so it cuts to this kind of steel drum sort of thing, and uh, there's colorful silhouettes of men and women dancing, uh, which is a pretty interesting opening because the James Bond franchise is now synonymous with opening with naked or nude or tastefully covered up women, and uh, <laughs> and 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 credits coming across the screen. But it wasn't until From Russia with Love, the next one, that uh, that this first started that this that this would you call it uh, a tradition in Bond movies started. It's even more interesting because this Bond movie doesn't have an opening theme. It really just has a bit of a, the now-famous Bond theme and then right. this Calypso music, you know? Yeah, it's the uh, which,
0: three blind mice thing.
1: Yes, yeah. So then the movie really begins when this, when this music again abruptly ends and it cuts to this version of three blind mice, and the silhouettes of three blind men, who then turn into real men, who, as it turns out, are only pretending to be blind as they shoot a man uh, named John Strangways, who's leaving a card game at a, at a club in uh, in Kingston, Jamaica. The camera cuts to the Strangways' house, where Mrs. Strangways flips open this bookshelf to reveal a radio, and, and and she's talking in some sort of spy code to a British voice on the other end, and she hears some movement outside of her house, so she gets up and checks her watch. These, these men break into her house, I, I think it's the same men, who had just killed John Strangways. Yeah, so. But uh, they break into the house, a uh, killer, and they open a filing cabinet and pull out a file labeled Dr. No. So then we're shown this voice on the other end of the radio. It's from MI6's call room in London, and they immediately begin to investigate what happened with the Strangways in Jamaica. So perhaps the best introduction to a character ever in any film franchise ever, it's ever, ever, great. is we are introduced to James Bond sitting at a card table at a swanky London club, where essentially he gets called in to MI6. Yeah, he's, he's playing cards with. What's your name again? Sylvia Trench?
0: Sylvia Trench, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this scene is where uh, Bond opens with that now famous line uh, Bond, James Bond. You know, she said, uh, My name is Trench, Sylvia Trench. She goes, Oh, I'm Bond. James Bond, or something along those lines.
0: Yeah, as you pointed out with me uh, off mic, the only reason he says his name the way he does is because he's replying in the same kind of snooty way she had just said her name, so I, that's yes, kind of interesting. Yes, yeah. What I've always really enjoyed about watching these franchises that, you know, have a bunch of entries is seeing how things adapt throughout the series. How many iconic mm-hmm. moments are introduced in the first movie and how many are introduced in subsequent movies this one gives us a lot of the sort of the things that the series is known for you know the bond girl with the suggestive name the theme not the theme song for the movie, but like the James Bond theme by uh, John Barry. Yes, but there's yeah. still there's still a lot that we don't quite get either, and I just find something like that so much more interesting when you're watching a series or rewatching a series to see it ho- to see how it develops.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this a bit after we talk about the uh, the plot. But in many ways, this was kind of the first kind of modern tongue in cheek spy movie, and it was the prototype. It was the cookie cutter mold that all james Bond, well that most i would say i mean i know i know you have a different opinion than me on this but this is the mold that most james bond movies followed after this
0: yeah i've always kind of thought of goldfinger as the movie that really gets the bond formula down just perfectly it's paced a lot more like an action movie uh whereas this one's a lot slower and more like kind of a mystery movie goldfinger is mm-hmm. also the one where we really see usage of gadgets there's like one thing in from russia with love but it's really small and it's believable Gold finger pushes us into this kind of spy almost science fiction territory with some of the gadgets
1: yeah because we were talking about this again off my cue is in this movie but he just gives bond a gun right and he's, he's not even yeah it's not desmond he, he, he's Lulin not the 6 or, or whatever
0: and yeah they, they he's don't call really like they a gadgety don't actually guys just they don't call him q he just all he does is give him the gun when he's in m's office yeah. And it's it's yeah. not even a gadget, you know, like we're kind of used to seeing, I mean, we've gotten away with this a little bit with Craig, but we're used to seeing watches with like lasers and stuff like that. So this is very different from that.
2: Well,
1: you know, speaking of M's office, I guess. So Bond yeah, gets called away scene. from this from from this swanky club and he goes to MI6 where he has this flirting encounter with uh Miss Moneypenny, the secretary to M who is the i have never understood their
0: relationship bond and money penny i i don't get it here i don't get it in future movies i've never understood this (laughs) relationship
1: well you know i think i was reading something once where she's supposed to be like this kind of dowdy woman i mean I, i don't think she's unattractive by any means but she's supposed to be this kind of dowdy woman that bond just kind of jokingly flirts with and that's supposed to add some kind of comedic element to the james bond movies Yes, but, you know, but again, I, I've
0: right? never I've never understood if she's genuinely into him or not, is what I'm saying, because she Oh is, are I they see. both okay. on the same level of jokingness or you know
1: Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so Bond goes into M's office, who is the head of intelligence for MI6, I guess, and uh, M tells him that the Strangways were looking into the possibility of radio waves uh, that were coming from Jamaica and were interfering with the launching of American rockets at Cape Canaveral.
0: This is the height of the space race, of course, 1932.
1: Yes, yes. Good old Ruskies in the USA. But yeah, so this coupled with their lack of radio communication, because the line went dead as, as Mrs. Strangways was talking to a British agent on the other end, Forces MI6 to send Bond to Jamaica to investigate.
0: Yeah, and then this is when Q gives him the gun. He gives him a Walter PPK to replace his Beretta or a Smith and Wesson. I think it's a Beretta. Yeah, Beretta. And it's that a lady's scene, gun, I think they say it's yeah they do. That <laughs> scene serves no real purpose. It's it's like a, it's a literal Chekhov's gun because you know Yes. it's introduced just to really show that he has a gun. But we would see it in the next scene anyway, so it's kind of pointless.
1: Because I was thinking about this the other day. It's also introduced to just kind of show us that this is like a an organization with new, powerful weapons who want their field agents to go out there and kill, not just maim. I guess. Like, I, I, don't, like, I don't like,
0: think we would have any different of a sense if you get rid of that and just have him in the next scene because the next scene is when he comes into his own home and realizes someone's broken in right so he exactly out yes
1: so he pulls out his gun and does a bit of a quick turn when he sees this light under the door when the door opens and it's uh miss sylvia trench from the club mm-hmm. and uh They have this bit of a sexy encounter where she's wearing one of his shirts and she somehow made her way into his uh, flat. (laughs) I never remember this line, but he says something like, I have to leave immediately. And she starts coming on to him. She goes, oh, do you have to leave so soon? And and he said, well, okay, I have to leave soon.
0: Yeah, well, and then (laughs) she kisses him and he's like, almost immediately or something like that.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that was a great little scene. But yeah, so then it cuts to Bond landing in Kingston, Jamaica, and as he walks off the plane, we're shown that a man is watching him from above the uh, arrivals gate, and there's a Mm -hmm. sinister-looking woman taking his photograph near the entrance of the airport and there's a chauffeur trying to get him into his car
0: and he completely is ready to steal a cab from two oh, yeah. <laughs> oh also <laughs> that, right, that yeah. were there
1: before him <laughs> yeah i know and he looks so annoyed when they're like excuse me that was our cab you know <laughs> but uh mm-hmm. he walks over to a payphone called government house the place where he is reporting to i guess to see if they've sent a driver for yeah. him and they said no mr bond we d- we didn't send you a driver just as you had requested he said okay well Perfect, thank you. So, knowing that it's probably a trap, he gets in the car and uh, the man that was looking at Bond from above the arrivals gate also gets into a car and and, and he follows this car that Bond's gotten into. So I guess, I mean, we spoke about this briefly, we're treated to kind of like a a tailing scene or this kind of, you know, semi-exciting car tail scene, not really a chase. But it's as this as beautiful road in Jamaica, which, by the way, before we continue, I want to point out that almost the entirety of this movie was filmed in Jamaica in 1962 mm-hmm. or 61 or whatever. Other than that's another Pinewood.
0: thing that's both kind of a tradition of this series, but also kind of not. Mm-hmm. Because with Bond movies, we usually get a globe trotting adventure. Here, we get, you know, the exotic locales that you would expect, but it's really just one locale. It's all Jamaica and then this tiny island off the coast of Jamaica.
1: Bond looks back and realizes that this car is pursuing them, so to evade him, Bond tells the chauffeur to pull off onto this side road. The maneuver works, Mm -hmm. and they lose their tail, and just as the chauffeur is wiping his brow, He's getting a little sweaty, he's getting a little hot under the collar. Just as he wipes his brow, you hear a click, and the camera pans to Bond holding a gun at the chauffeur's back.
0: I like this shot a lot, I like how they reveal, you know, you hear you hear something but you don't see what's happening, and then the camera goes over to Bond, and, and you realize that he's in charge of, he's been in charge of the situation the entire time.
1: Mm-hmm. It's showing him that he really is a, a real spy, I guess, who knows what he's doing. Absolutely. So Bond starts questioning the driver. Uh, He demands to know who he is, who he's working for, who sent him. And they get into a bit of a tussle (laughs) where Bond uses this signature move where he (laughs) flips somebody like over his shoulder.
0: I think they may have sped that shot up just a tad if so it's done really well like a lot of times you can really tell easily if something sped up this one the fact that i'm not sure means if they did do it they did a pretty darn good job of it and if they didn't do it the those two stuntmen because i'm pretty sure this isn't connery in this shot did an outstanding job
1: but anyways as as bond is trying to get information out of the chauffeur the chauffeur asks for a cigarette and so bond obliges and he he gives him a cigarette but he, he bites into this cyanide capsule in the cigarette or like cyanide in the cigarette and he dies
0: yeah yeah this scene's frustrating because i feel like we've seen him in charge of the situation lets this one mm-hmm. you know let, lets this happen it's you, you know what's happening you know what's going to happen they've been doing that since like world war 1 era spies
1: <laughs> exactly so. yeah yeah but uh
0: maybe even earlier <laughs> it,
1: well yeah no, i know uh, i it, it shows I, I don't want to sh- say that it shows like Bond's incompetence because I think he's far from incompetent, but it's just—I I don't know—he
0: know. lets a woman break into his house. Oh, that's true. Yeah. He's not, oh, this, but we're not was, seeing the most competent well, here.
1: Well, she was a gorgeous woman. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he like set it. Yeah, up, but he know?
0: apparently left his—he <laughs> apparently left his place unlocked. Yeah, because he gave her—he gave her his room number, not his key.
1: <laughs> yeah, not a lockpick. You know. But yeah. So after this scene, Bond uh, takes the dead chauffeur and the chauffeur's car to Government House. So he shows up at government house. There's a great little scene there where he says uh, he gets out and there's two guards at the door of government house, and he says, "Make sure he doesn't go anywhere, or, or watch him, or something like that." Yeah, and the chauffeur looks, or the uh, the one of the guards look over, walks over and realizes the chauffeur is just completely dead in the backseat. I
0: must say, Arnold Schwarzenegger has a better version of that same joke in Commando when he uh, knocks a dude out on the plane, and the flight attendant comes by. He says, "Don't wake my friend. He's dead tired." <laughs> that that would have that would have uh, this would have been the perfect time for that exact joke because oh, yeah, I think absolutely. that's a great joke.
1: Yeah, so he goes so, so Bond goes into government house and uh, I'm not really sure who they are, but it's, uh, it's some government employees, some government officials. He's asking questions. There,
0: this is MI6's like Jamaican headquarters, right?
1: I don't know because government house, I think government house is part of the British it's like an embassy? Yeah, probably. And, and and they've been told that Bond is from MI6, but to tell people that he's with like that, okay. that he's an importer exporter.
0: Yeah, that's right. He's a universal exporter. That was right? it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Which that name pops up throughout the series, although I don't think they've gone back to it in a while.
1: Isn't that what uh what Kramer uses in Seinfeld, or like uh, and George uses? In no,
0: uh, jo- George Costanza is Art vandalay
1: importer exporter. That's... <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> vandalay vandalay say (laughs) Uh, what a a great episode but yeah so bond's in government house and they're giving him a bit of a rundown on the strangways and that john strangways uh played whatever card game it was at like a local club and uh,
0: i never know these like bond like 60s bond there's like baccarat there's like all these card games that i know nothing <laughs> exactly, about i want yeah. give me blackjack and poker those are like the <laughs> only two things i know everything else don't understand it yeah
1: but uh yeah so so bond is told that uh john's uh, John strangways has some friends that he used to hang out with a lot essentially that he used to see a lot that might know something about his disappearance or his his death
0: yeah they were the last people to see him a Yeah,
1: exactly and then bond says okay well i'm gonna start at their house at the strangways house so he asks to be taken to their house so once he's there, he, mm-hmm. he pokes around a bit. Uh, he finds a geology book and a bill for a geology survey signed by a uh, Professor R.J. Dent, who I think I think it's the previous scene we're told that he's a friend of Strangway's, or we see it in the next scene that he's a friend yeah, of Yeah, I think he
0: was one of the guys at the card table, yeah. I'm pretty sure.
1: As Bond is poking around in the Strangway's house, he finds a picture of John Strangway's and a local fisherman that Bond thinks he can get some answers out of. Mm-hmm. So Bond then goes to the, uh, to the club to talk to Strangway's friends, where they mention the fisherman by name, Quarrel, and uh, that he'd been taking Strangways out, fishing around Jamaica and to, and to different islands. So Bond goes down to the harbor to look for Quarrel. He approaches him, and he's unwilling to talk about either the Strangways or where he took Strangways fishing. Quarrel kind of walks away to a bar on the beach somewhere, or at the harbor, and Bond sort of semi-follows him. no he's he's
0: being he's being pretty blatant about it again going back to possible incompetence by james bond (laughs) if he didn't want coral to know he was following him he did an awful job of it but i i don't know if he doesn't want him to know or not i'm not really sure what this scene is
1: yeah and i mean you know i was also thinking about this one of my favorite things to think of when when talking about this movie is that mi six sent a six two scottish (laughs) scottish man to jamaica to figure out what's going on. <laughs> you know, like could you could you not send somebody who blends in a little more well?
0: Well I also I would just this As good a time as now to bring this up doesn't really fit in at any time in our discussion, but I love that they got a Scottish dude to be the first James Bond because that's not the conventional move, right? He's an English character. I don't know how well respected or popular the books were before this one, before this movie came out. I know most of the books predate the movies. Hmm. Again, don't know how popular they were or if they became popular with the movies, but yeah, they got they got a Scottish dude back in the time when, let alone American audiences, I would imagine British audiences weren't that used to seeing Scottish people in major roles in motion pictures.
1: After Connery, you get uh, what's his name, George Lazenby or Lazenby's from Yeah, the he's Australian. Australian, right? Yeah, but you only get him for one movie. But after that, it's Roger Moore, right. who sounds so much more like he's the, the most James
0: English Ball. person yeah. ever. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, and I mean,
0: so obviously Connery's not our only non-English Bond because Brosnan, I believe, is Northern Irish as well. Yes, yeah. So it's just kind of interesting that the most English character of all English characters, with possible exception of uh, Sherlock Holmes, has been played almost as often as not by non-Englishmen.
1: But yeah, so he follows Quarrel to this bar, and eventually after some, I guess, kind of like strange interaction where Quarrel refuses to give Bond any information, then he says, okay, fine, but it's too public here. I've got to take you to this back room. So Bond follows Quarrel to this background, to, to this uh, back room, and Quarrel pulls a knife on him. Mm-hmm. And there's also this bartender comes in behind him, and they're going to attack Bond, but Bond f- flips both of them over his shoulder. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> and, the same move.
1: Yeah, and holds him at gunpoint and starts backing out of the room to leave when he's stopped by another man holding a gun, who is the man from the airport, who, has, as it turns out, is a CIA agent named Felix Leiter. Uh, who was working yeah. with Quarrel to uncover the source of the radio transmissions that were affecting NASA's rockets.
0: I've got a couple things to say about this moment. I One, I like, we kind of get the same trick that we got earlier with the chauffeur, but this time it's done on Bond. As Bond backs away, the same thing happens where he stops, there's a gun on him, but we don't see it yet, and yeah. then the camera reveals who it is. It It goes to show, because what that scene kind of proved early on was that, like, damn, Bond is good. He's in control. Now we're seeing that this other, this CIA agent is incredibly competent too. And Felix Leiter, of course, would become a mainstay for the series. He's in probably more than half the movies, almost a different actor every time until the Daniel Craig movies came about. But this time he's played by Jack Lord of Hawaii Five-O fame. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he was famous yet, but he would go on to, to have a huge career mostly television it looks like he didn't do that many movies the other thing i want to point out is his sunglasses <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's been he's been wearing them since the scene in the airport so we've seen them before but the, these are like almost elton john levels of like oh
1: yeah yeah effeminate kind of i've never ever seen gla- like sunglasses like that in any movie from the 60s and i'm wondering like even women wearing them and i'm wondering where he got them from and even like Right. <laughs> they they just look so goofy. Like are they women's sunglasses? I don't know. But Well,
0: if if they if those sun, same sunglasses were to be made today, they would absolutely be women's sunglasses because men's sunglasses just seem to be less, you know stylish and just more straightforward design women have a bit more flourish in their sunglasses but also there is something very very 1960s about them too Mm -hmm. in the upper left and right it reminds me a lot of the 1960s cars and those fins that they would have i don't know what else you'd really call them
1: yeah you know what i'm talking about the sunglasses look fast you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they yeah. look fast for a '60s Cadillac or something like
0: that. No, but they they look at they look incredibly goofy too, though. But I like how like Jack Lord is still playing the role, so cool that oh, yeah, you kind of have to admire his confidence wearing sunglasses like that. Oh,
1: absolutely, and he he kind of plays like the straight man, like the straight agent. You know, like he's there to do a yeah.
0: job. He's, yeah, exactly. He's not... Felix Leiter, throughout the series, usually doesn't have that much of a personality. I think he usually is just the guy doing his job. Bond is cracking jokes, he's sleeping with women, you know, yeah. all that stuff. And he and he's also in it a lot deeper, usually, than Felix Leiter is, because he's more of, like, a peripheral character. He's not in danger nearly as much as bond although between the two of them he's the only one to lose a limb in this yeah, series that's true yeah <laughs> he gets to kill, it right? eaten by a shark <laughs> yeah oh that movie sucks oh, thank we'll get we'll get to the bond movies uh, eventually and also if this wasn't clear from our previous episode on frankenstein though we're picking these movies at random we are going to go in chronological order so that if we you know land on a remake or a sequel we're going to continue with the series in, in the order they were released so because these bond movies have such wonderful continuity especially with the felix lighter character you know we got it we got to watch him in order right
1: oh for sure of course getting back to the movie i don't really want to call this next scene an information dump because it's done so well but uh
0: but this is an exposition scene absolutely
1: exactly yeah but uh Felix and Quarrel and Bond all sit down at this at this harborside bar during this night of dancing, which, as you pointed out. Uh,
0: uh, night of dancing white people. Yeah,
1: exactly. Night of dancing white people in Jamaica.
0: It's <laughs> nothing I think uh, I think of when I think of Jamaica more than white people dancing.
1: Yeah. White people dancing in like ethnic Jamaican dresses and stuff. That's, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not, but uh, yeah, so Felix and Quarrel kind of explain that they're. Not entirely sure where the interference with the NASA rockets is coming from, uh, they don't think it's coming from Jamaica because they've checked the whole of the island. The only place they haven't checked is a place called Crab Key, which is this private island owned by a mysterious Chinese man named Dr. No. Felix does point out that recon photos were taken, but all they found was an old mining facility that's protected by guards and low-level radar. Quarrel says that he's afraid of going near the island and so are the other islanders, because that there's a dragon? on the island.
0: Yeah. But that he used to take strangways there at
1: night to collect rocks and dirt samples.
0: This is a little silly, this whole dragon part. This is my least favorite part of the movie, overall.
1: We'll come back to it when we get to the dragon part.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Yeah, because I totally agree with you.
0: There's even something from the novel that I want to mention that's sort of similar to the dragon, but not quite as dumb, in my opinion. I, I did read this novel. I don't remember it too well. Sorry if I repeat that whenever I talk about books, but when you're in graduate school, you don't do a lot of reading for pleasure (laughs) but uh Uh, yeah i have read most of the bond novels and this one i believe like all the others except for on her majesty's secret service is a very liberal adaptation of the novel
1: but uh yeah so the next scene after this uh after this scene this exposition dump bond goes to see professor dent because dent's name was on this geological survey receipt or report so bond goes to ask him what the strangways came to seem about And Dent says that he thought they had found some valuable rocks on Crab Key. Or, sorry, he he thought that they had found some valuable rocks somewhere, but it was just low-grade pyrite. So Bond asks if the rocks came from Crab Key, and Dent replies, no, 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 it's geologically impossible. And then Mm -hmm. smash cut, essentially, (laughs) to a car flying down the road to the harbor, and it's Dent hopping out, and he's trying to get on a boat to go to Crab Key, which he gets on. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he shows up at Crab Key, we see this big, huge, like... Steel mining facility, uh, right on the water. Uh, lots of armed guards, and Dent is led into this beautiful room. This this beautiful set, uh, where this disembodied voice of who we are to assume is Doctor No. Doctor No reprimands Dent for coming to Crab Key in daylight, and instructs him to take a <laughs> a spooky tarantula to uh, <laughs> to kill Bond with.
0: This is, um, I like this scene because I love the set. This is probably one of the few Pinewood mm-hmm. sets, like you pointed out, most of the rest of the movie was shot in Jamaica. But it's it's still a little silly with the disembodied voice thing, which is something that the first three or four, or at least the first two Bond movies would do, because then we're introduced to, we don't know his name until you only live twice, but Blofeld, the head of Spectre. But in this case, it's even a little sillier because he's, it's not just that he's disguised for the audience, but he's disguised even to Dent, a guy he work, a guy who works for him. It's a little silly. But, I, you know,
1: it, it adds to that kind of mystery detective aspect of the movie that we were kind of hinting at earlier or, or, or touching on earlier, which I kind of like. But I do agree with you. For, a, for what we would know and love or, and come to love, I guess, about Bond movies, it, it is a little silly but it's but it's so 60s you know what i mean like the set is like so 60s exactly
0: it's very it's very 1960s but and on the scale of silliness in james bond movies it's pretty low because we eventually get cars going in corkscrew shapes flying through the air we well, get yeah, we,
1: i think what you uh, mean to say, sur- Patrick, ice
0: is, surfing
1: yeah well I mean, i think what you mean to say is we get roger moore we get
0: the dune buggy
1: Oh my, okay. Listen. It's
0: not just Roger Moore. <laughs> You're it's right. not just Roger Moore. It's mostly Roger buggy. Moore.
1: It's mostly poor Roger Moore, but I do love Roger Moore. It's
0: mostly Roger Moore, but it's but I think Diamonds Are Forever is as guilty as any Roger Moore movie is, and Die Another Day is sure as hell guilty also.
1: Absolutely. So that night, Bond uh, is in his hotel room, and he's awoken by a tarantula crawling up his body, which, going back to Silly Things and Bond, uh, you and I were discussing... This is up there. This is a bit higher, I think. Yeah, because you and I were talking about maybe this being in Sean Connery's contract that you couldn't put like a a live tarantula on him or something. Because when it it shows the full body of Connery laying in bed, you can clearly tell that the tarantula is crawling on glass that's been like laid over top of him or something. Because it's just, like, sliding up his body.
0: I almost wish we only got close-ups, even though it's disconnected from Connery and it's obviously a stuntman of some kind. It just looks better.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's so silly. I kind of compared it to the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when Harrison Ford falls in the in, in the pit of snakes and a yeah. cobra jumps up. But you can see the cobra's reflection in the, in the glass in front of him. So, anyway, so Bond shoots out of bed and uh, he kills the tarantula but he doesn't just kill it right patrick
0: this is probably the silliest moment in the entire movie when he he because he's like (laughs) smashing the tarantula with his shoe and he doesn't more than i think it's a shoe and he doesn't more than once Mm -hmm. and each time he does it there's like an orchestral hit in the score because the score had been (laughs) kind of rising in in levels of creepiness as the tarantula was walking across him well each time he hits it's this boom boom boom, boom, like to the rhythm of his <laughs> swinging, and it's so dumb. Oh, it is, yeah. Absolutely. And that's that brings up another point, that just about the score in general. We all love the James Bond theme, of course. Again, the John Barry thing. John Barry mm-hmm. didn't do the score of the movie. He, he just did that theme, and that theme's great. The score, not as much, but also the score it seems very, very not sure of itself it will just use the bond theme in random spots like when bond bond is just walking around i i know it plays when he gets up from the card game with sylvia which okay yes, makes yeah. a little bit of sense there because he's being suave and sophisticated i'm pretty sure it plays when he's like following quarrel and it's just like it's again it's interesting having seen the rest of the series w- seeing a movie that's not sure how to use that theme realizing it's great but not sure how to use it yet
1: yeah, so after this scene, this this terrifying and exciting scene of this tarantula crawling up Sean Connery, this is when Bond realizes, you know, I have to, like, somebody's actually and actively trying to kill me. So I have to go to Government House and learn more about this Dr. No and Crab Key. So he goes to Government House, he requests the information, but they can't find any of the files. They're missing. But instead, what Bond does find is the secretary of Government House listening in at the keyhole of the door. So he kind of guesstimates that she's a baddie. Mm-hmm. And uh, he invites her on a date. Yeah, this so, is Miss uh,
0: Taro, played by Zena Marshall.
1: Yes, yeah. Great name. Well, you know, there's always, like, well, I mean, maybe not a great name, but I like a lot of the names in, in the Bond movies because they're fun and kind of goofy and maybe a little too ethnic sometimes.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think this one's fine. The, the real problem is we have a non-Asian actress playing an Asian woman. That's I don't mind the name here.
1: Well, you know, we have a non-Asian actor playing a, an, a half-Asian... Man, we'll and we get to that more non-asians playing asian people but you know again <laughs> like like the uh, the the photographer the it gets Republican worse in
0: the series this is don't think because this is the oldest oh, absolutely. movies it's it's going to be the the most awkward or unacceptable to watch you know politically incorrect no it actually gets worse a few years later <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh it does oh, that's great though. significantly um, worse
0: again diamonds are forever i think is the worst one the way it treats the gay characters the way um, oh
1: yeah that's
0: right isn't oh no 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 i was
1: yeah i forgot they were gay
0: charles gray's in yellow face in the different movie but there's there's other stuff in diamonds are forever that's like what are we doing here Sean oh Iron that's when he like beats he only like the opening scene is him like beating a woman almost it's terrible like the way he threatens when he takes off her top on the beach that's like
1: oh that's that's, right that's, I that's about that <laughs> that's the creepiest he strangles her, sle- her with her
0: bikini top. yeah that's the creepiest sleaziest <laughs> least smooth bond has ever been
1: yeah so to get back to dr no bond is waiting for this date but while he's waiting he gets a package from m i that he requested or ordered, I guess, from MI6, and he picks it up at the hotel, and it turns out to be a Geiger counter. So he goes to the boat that Quarles has been using to take uh, John Strangways out to Crab Key and back, and he finds that the rock and soil samples are highly radioactive. I guess we didn't really point this out, but there's something to do with nuclear power or radioactivity in the movie, and it's mentioned briefly, I think, near the beginning, but, spoilers, it still isn't really explained that well at the end of the movie. We're just going to pass over that for now. Then Bond asks Quarrel to take him to Crab Key that night, and he's hesitant, but he agrees.
0: Because of the dragon again.
1: Exactly, because of this lovely... I mean, because of the spooky, scary dragon. So then Bond starts going to his date's house, which she lives up this lovely Jamaican mountain, this sandy Jamaican mountain. And as he's driving up there, there's a bit of a car chase with uh, the men from the beginning, or at least the car from the beginning of the movie. But there's a bit of a car chase, and Bond outmaneuvers them. He drives under, uh, like, like, a backhoe or something.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, he kind of lucks out by there being, like, construction there or whatever that was.
1: Yeah, and and because he's driving, like, a a 60s sports car and they're driving, like, a 32 Chev or something, you know? (laughs) So... They slide off this sandy mountain and explode into flames.
0: Yeah, this shot goes on for way too long. Well, it's a couple of shots, but usually, you know, car going over a cliff, exploding or crashing, like that's in a ton of action movies. I don't think I've seen one that holds on the truck as long as this one does. We get two angles, at least two angles, because there's one from the road, there's one from you know, the valley that it careens into. The base,
1: yeah. Yeah, and
0: it's just... You know, actually... And the explosion, too, uh, it's just, it kind of catches fire and explodes. I I want a more definitive explosion. I want that scene to be quick, the car just to be gone, you know?
1: Yeah, I I will say there have been long shots. I mean, I, I can't name any specific ones off the top of my head, but I know in the Bond franchise there have been long shots on explosions, but they've been more spectacular in the sense that... Yeah. the car will fall off a cliff and it'll hold the car falling for like three or four seconds and then hitting rocks below and exploding this was just like a gentle <laughs> yeah bounce in like it's a 32 in grandpa's 32 Chevy yeah it's the side not of this that Sandy
0: exciting it's, in 1962 we'll take what we can get i guess
1: i mean you have to but yeah you know, again i mean it's it's not even annoying it's just a little silly and i don't think it detracts from the movie but it, you're right it it is a little silly and needless or unnecessary so anyway, so Bond gets up to his, to his date's house. Uh, what was her name? Taro? M- Miss? Miss or, Tarot, yeah. What's her name? So he gets up to Miss Tarot's house, and she's surprised to see him. She was expecting that he'd be run off the road and killed. As Bond is kind of trying to get her back out of her towel or bathrobe or whatever she's wearing, she gets a call from Dr. No, or Professor Dent. Yeah, I um, thought it was really Dent. I'm not really sure. I mean, yeah, I thought it was Dr. No, but again... Whatever She gets a call from somebody, from some bad person, and she agrees to try and hold Bond there for a few more hours, and uh, which she does with her body. Uh, so after they uh, uh, they fool around a bit, Bond, uh, I, I don't remember, I think she was either out of the room or he tricked her, but either way he calls the authorities to pick her up. Oh, he, he said he was calling a cab, that was it. So he actually calls some authorities on the island and uh, they pick her up. And he waits for... I guess it was Dent he was talking or sh- she was talking to, and he waits for Dent to show up, which he does, and uh, he attempts to kill Bond, but uh, Bond disarms him and he interrogates him about the Strangways and Crab Key and what's really going on. Dent is pretty unwilling to help. He lunges for his gun again and he attempts to kill Bond, but Bond just kind of coldly shoots Dent. The whole scene is great and it might be my favorite in in the movie, to be honest.
0: Yeah, it's probably my favorite scene. Bond has almost never been cooler. I think it's clever too because doesn't he unload? Doesn't he, he does, unload yeah. Dent's gun when he's not looking? I so again, so, yeah. he's completely in control of the situation, no matter if the other guy thinks he has the upper hand or not.
1: We're then shown Bond and Quarrel essentially heading out to Crab Key, where they encounter the lovely Honey Rider, famously played by Ursula Andrus, in uh, in a beautiful white belted bikini, as you pointed out, that cool belt uh, for her shucking knife, I guess, because she's collecting shells on the beach mm-hmm. of, uh, of Crab Key. In this part of the book, um, she's
0: naked, so thanks 1962
1: yeah jerks (laughs) (laughs) although i want to say that i want to
0: say that it her being naked actually makes more sense for her to be acting the way she does in this movie i mean the second bond makes it clear that he sees her he kind of comes out and sings along while she's singing she Mm -hmm. freaks out pulls the knife immediately i mean she's trespassing on or I don't know if it's private property, but she's <laughs> On like... On private some, property, yeah. Yeah, she's, you know, somewhere she's not supposed to be. Her reacting that way makes more sense if he's, like, if she's naked and she's additionally vulnerable, I think. But, yeah, I mean, you know, Bond's being a bit of a creep here, so it's not unjustified he, he, the way listen, it is.
1: Nothing against Connery, of course. Rest in peace there, sir. And nothing against the character of Bond, but he's, you know, he's known to be a bit of a perv. So... Again, it gets
0: worse in the series, believe it or not. It gets a lot worse.
1: (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so after kind of chatting and meeting Honey, I guess, uh, Bond realizes that she has sailed up to the island, and he asks her if she sailed up with with the sail on her boat. And she goes, yeah, of course. Bond realizes that she's probably been detected by the low-level radar of the island that Felix and MI6 had explained uh, to him. Just as Bond is thinking that, I guess a, a bunch of guards or pe- people working for Dr. No show up in this high-powered mm-hmm. boat <laughs> and uh, just start shooting at them, <laughs> which they have the worst aim. Yeah, they know?
0: take cover behind, like, sort of a trench, you know, where the sand...
1: Like like an above-water sandbar.
0: Yeah, yeah and, uh, and they shoot for a while, and then after that they give up and just say they'll be back. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: I expect more thorough armed guards for this top-secret nuclear... You know,
1: N- nuclear radio threatening the world thing. mission. Yeah, so they evade the guards and Bond, Coral, and Honey move further inland. They evade a bunch of guards and they eventually come to a rest stop or or, or a resting point. When Honey and Coral point out these dragon tracks, these quote unquote dragon tracks, which.
0: <laughs> yeah, because she she had um, confirmed Quarrel's dragon theory. Like when we first hear about the dragon, it's lighter. That's like, oh come on. It's some local superstition. And then, you know, obviously Bond isn't going to believe that. But when Quarrel mentions it, Bond's like, you're being ridiculous. And she's like, no, but it's true.
1: Exactly, yeah. and he's.
0: So they feel vindicated by finding these dragon tracks. Yeah,
1: and then as the camera pans down, it's clearly just like tire tracks. So then pretty much as soon as they point out these dragon tracks, Quarrel goes, it's over here, it's over here. They run over there, and it turns out that it's like this dumb-looking armored car or something like that that's painted up to look like a dragon and has like a flamethrower attached, so it so it shoots fire yeah, yeah. when i was a
0: kid i'm embarrassed to note that i wasn't sure if the movie was trying to pass it off as a dragon
1: <laughs> i know like <laughs> because
0: I, you know i because coral in in this moment this is and coral dies here too <laughs> which makes Poor it that coral. much kind of dumber but he's he sees the thing and he's like oh see i'm right <laughs> And then it kills him (laughs) like it's a dragon, and he was right all along, but, like, it doesn't matter. But, no, he's wrong, and he still dies because of it, too. It just kind of sucks. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, and, like, Coral's hiding behind a bush, like, shooting at it, shooting at its eyes, which are, like, lights, (laughs) you know? And Bond is, like, trying to take out the lights of the tank car thing. But, yeah, unfortunately, Quirrell gets burnt to death, and these guys in hazmat suits or something, like, some kind of radioactivity suit thing, they hop out and cuff Bond and Honey they take them to uh, decontamination showers. So they're scrubbed down and uh, led away to some rooms and Bond pours honey in himself a cup of coffee and then honey passes out and Bond realizes that the coffee's been drugged as he's as as bond is asleep i I don't know how he gets to his bed but then we're shown a shot of bond laying in his bed
0: yeah i've got a a bit of a problem with this scene because the whole point is for them to wake up and be with dr Mm -hmm. no right basically but really they're already captive they don't need to drug them yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's it's very kind of it feels like uh we need to throw another spy thing in this movie what's a spy thing uh you know slipping someone a mickey sure <laughs> put it here. yeah we're like this is the only place it, it it fits in the movie i guess yeah we're right? like
1: you know uh, l- let's prove how bad dr no really is i don't you know i don't know but Let- let's prove that he's not here to mess around even though he's on an island in like an old mining facility and he's created this underground lair and he has a fucking flame he's got armed car. guards <laughs> that
0: just shot it shot out at nothing exactly, i yeah. mean i think he's he's been proven to be bad exactly. enough
1: so, uh, yeah, so while Bond is asleep, somebody kind of creeps into his room in a, in a white suit and these black gloves. And then the scene kind of abruptly ends and cuts to Bond and Honey waking up and, and putting some clothes on and getting ready for dinner. Very shortly after, we are uh, introduced to Dr. No. Who's he played by again, Patrick?
0: Joseph Weisman. Mm-hmm. Weisman? Probably Weissman. He's I'm not too familiar with the actor. He he's in a Twilight Zone episode, not one of the better ones. He also looks a lot like Christopher Plummer, but it's not him. <laughs> and he's also not Chinese.
1: Yeah, he's definitely not Chinese, but he's playing a, a, a half German, half Chinese evil guy.
0: To defend Hollywood whitewashing I'm guessing in the 1960s it probably wasn't that easy to find someone who's half European half Chinese you know as an yeah. actor
1: you know yeah I mean I'll you know let
0: it slide here, yeah I, guess.
1: I mean, he doesn't do a terrible job and I think he passes because he does kind of look I mean because when you look at him you're like I don't know if it's the makeup or something which it's just white makeup it looks like but there's something about him that you he could probably be mistaken for being half Chinese you know what I mean
0: looks like he could pass for a quarter half is a bit much and then you know it's also the clothes and i guess
1: you know we're told that he's half chinese and yada yada yada
0: he's also like half robot
1: exactly so (laughs) jumping off that (laughs) he crushes this mug with his gloved hands which we learn aren't actually gloves or maybe they are gloves but they're hiding robotic Uh, they are
0: gloves they're just over like they're not robotic they're just like ultra strong or something yeah yeah i don't know maybe they're robotic i I don't think robotics the right word but they're like metal
1: yeah they're, they're super strong ultra hands, uber hands. This scene, I mean, we've spoken about this before, this scene is a little confusing because we don't really get any information about who Dr. No is or what he's doing. He right. tells Bond that he's a member of a super intelligent group of individuals who are essentially villains, and they're called Spectre. Special oh,
0: executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, and extortion. That was it. Yeah, I think that's it. Which has always bothered me a bit that the first two letters come from the same word.
1: But yeah, so he tells Bond that he's a member of this super intelligent group of villains called Spectre. We don't even really get a reason for why he's fiddling with NASA's rockets, but we just know he is. And Bond. Right.
0: My ultimate, my biggest ultimate complaint about this movie, it's really hammered home here, is that this movie is not an action movie, the way, you know, we think of modern action movies functioning. Mm -hmm. It is much more like a mystery. It's kind of like a film noir shot in color. But the problem is the plot there isn't that much plot there's not that much mystery that we learn it's kind of like the second we hear about dr no i guess the first time we technically encounter his name is when the file is being stolen but once bond is on the case the first time we hear of dr no it's like oh he's the guy the first time we hear about crab key it's like oh that's where he yeah. is you know we kind of are able to figure it out all way too soon if this is a mystery movie and again it's not technically but i find that the pacing is much more like a mystery than it is like an action movie yes and this scene not only does this kind of answer some questions we have but it also kind of gives us more because though we get the bad guy plan it's I feel like there's a lot more to it that we still don't learn.
1: Well, yeah, and exactly. I mean, because, you know, as as I was pointing out, we don't know why he's fiddling with the Rockets. And Bond kind of assumes or I guess makes an assertion that he's after some kind of world domination. And Dr. No doesn't disagree with him, but he also doesn't really agree with him. He just kind of says, oh, I'm working with Spectre, yeah. I'm a part of Spectre.
0: Yeah, and at this point in the series, obviously this is the first movie, we don't know what Spectre truly exactly, means. Yeah. Yeah,
1: it's just, it, I think it's almost like a failed exposition dump, you know? Or like they wanted it to, to remain semi-mysterious, and Spectre to remain semi-mysterious, and Doctor No to remain semi-mysterious. But really, we just don't get any information at all. Oh, and then on top of that, we don't get any information as to why he's using, like, nuclear power to broadcast these radio transmissions, you know, which we see essentially in the next scene, because Dr. No removes Honey from the table and takes her to, as we will see near the end, this kind of, like, torture chamber room where she's cuffed to the floor and uh, and, and is waiting for water to slowly fill a room, and uh, he has... Uh, Sean Con- or, uh, James Bond beaten up, really, and thrown into a cell, and, uh, you know, you might ask, How's James Bond gonna get out of a cell when Dr. No is fiddling with more rockets?
0: Maybe the vent that's perfectly human size. I would
1: say, like, two or three times the size of human. But, uh, yeah. yeah. and But, oh, you know, I mean, it's protected by an, ele- an electrified grate. Oh, but don't worry about it, because Sean Connery just grabs it with his hand wrapped up in clothes and pries it open and gets his way into the vents, and he starts shimmying around in there. And he eventually finds his way either to the room that they were taken to with the, with the disinfectant shower or a different room that's similar to that, and he incapacitates a guard in, in one of these radiation suits, and he puts the suit on. He makes his way to this reactor room slash radio transmission room where Dr. No is. And Dr. No, not realizing that he is no longer that guard or or scientist or person, whatever, he instructs uh, Bond to get up on top of the the reactor. And as soon as he gets up there, this is my favorite scene because it's kind of goofy. As soon as he gets up there, he just starts cranking the reactor into overload.
0: (laughs) This scene bothers me a lot, too, because this is kind of like, even though... Whatever he does wreaks chaos throughout. It really does feel like he has no idea oh, yeah. what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? It's, it's like he's just making it up as he goes along, and you're thinking like, okay, we had that big exposition scene, and we didn't learn that much. Oh, Bond didn't learn that much either. He's just doing whatever the hell he can.
1: <laughs> the reactor starts overloading, and everybody starts fleeing the facility because, like, it's going to explode. And Dr. No realizes that James Bond is up there, fiddling with his with his reactor while he's trying to fiddle with rockets and radio waves and uh, they get into a bit of a fight and eventually they both kind of slowly start falling because i think the reactor isn't the reactor lowering into the water or something no yeah already. yeah so so they bo- they're both on top of the reactor being slowly lowered into this now boiling coolant water and james bond escapes and dr no could have escaped because he was only on his back on top of the reactor but he couldn't pull himself up because his mechanical hands could not grip the steel that was lowering <laughs> the reactor.
0: I like which, that. It's yeah. you know, it shows the dangers of having a physical abnormality that would make you perfect to be a Bond villain.
1: Yeah. So anyway, so we hear in the background as this fight is continuing and as Doctor No dies, that the most recent rocket launch at Cape Canaveral went off successfully without a hitch, proving that Bond ruined Doctor No's plans, whatever they were. And uh, he starts leaving the facility as everybody else is running around screaming. It's total chaos. The facility's going up in smoke. Things are sparking. But he's looking for Honey. He can't find Honey. Eventually, he finds somebody and they they take him to this room where, as I mentioned earlier, Honey is chained to the floor waiting for water to slowly rise. He saves her and they fly out of the the, uh, facility and (laughs) they commandeer a boat with people already on it who James Bond throws into the water. (laughs) And then literally two seconds later, as he speeds away with Honey in their little speedboat, the facility explodes. <laughs> and then after that exciting climax, we're shown the boat stuck in the middle of nowhere, essentially. And Bond has just checked the fuel tank and he says, oh, we've, we've run out of fuel. But luckily, Felix Leiter shows up with the Jamaican Navy on like a tugboat. We don't, like we don't know what organization or
0: this is. We don't know yeah. what organization this is, and I want to know because one of the guys has a helmet that says STD on it. So I don't know <laughs> what that stands for. I have no idea
1: <laughs> in this case. But uh, he throws them a tow line. Felix throws them a tow line. Yeah, and... is
0: the is the Jamaican Coast Guard STD? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But, uh, yeah, so he throws them a tow line. Uh, they tie it up to their boat. And as you're getting towed away, Honey is kind of looking at Bond, and she sinks to the floor of the boat out of view of the camera. And Bond is looking down, and he slowly sinks to the floor. And then we see that Honey unties the tow line. And they're again stranded in the ocean, but together. <laughs> and yep. that is the end of the movie, really. Yeah, so what did you uh, what did you think of Dr. No, Patrick? Give us your...
0: I mean, this is far from one of my favorite Bond movies. I think this... Because the Bond movies, they're they're... On a scale, there's quality in terms of just it's a really good movie, and then there's quality in terms of this is so dumb you have to appreciate just the schlock put into it like a moonraker and this is somewhere in between it's not as exciting as a goldfinger or a casino royale or Mm -hmm. a golden eye obviously it's probably the least exciting bond movie and a lot of that's just because it's the first one they didn't quite know what they how to handle the action yet but it's also got moments in it that are so silly Again, not as bad as, like, the stuff in Diamonds Are Forever or Man with a Golden Gun. But the whole climax is incredibly goofy, especially with the suits they're wearing. Because, I mean, they're not normal hazmat suits. They just, they look like bad 1950s alien, you know, Martian outfits or something. Absolutely. And then there's that. And then there's the whole dragon thing, which, I don't know. I mean, that stuff belongs in a schlockier movie than this is. That stuff belongs in You Only Live Twice or Diamonds Are Forever. You know, one of the more goofy ones, which this movie isn't. It has a relatively serious tone.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I think...
0: I'm complaining about the tone of a James Bond movie while the movie Munchie is on television in my basement here.
1: I agree with you in a lot of ways. I mean, not to give too much insight into how we record these podcasts, but this is actually a re-record. Uh, we had a bit of technical difficulties. And
0: and also Sir yes. Sean Connery passed away and we wanted to, we didn't want to slap together like an extra note that we inserted somewhere randomly. We wanted oh, to exactly. kind of yeah. address that.
1: Taking like a four or five day break in between the original filming of this and the, uh, and this, I guess, or the the recording, I should say. You've kind of swayed me onto your side about this Bond movie. My original opinion was that this is a really good Bond movie, and you have to look at it as a Bond movie that has no connection to the other Bond movies. Like, this is a standalone Bond movie. It's a standalone film. In other words, imagine it as if no other Bond movies had come out. And I think it's a great movie. I still kind of hold that opinion, but it's not But as... we have
0: been spoiled with so many exactly, other Bond yeah. movies. We can't ignore that in 2020. No, exactly.
1: exactly. I still hold that opinion that it's a fine movie, it's a good movie as a standalone movie, and it's a fine Bond movie, but I am, I think, going to remove it from my tier of, like, favorite Bond movies and move it down to that middling tier but at the top of that middling tier you know like above most of the roger moore stuff
0: that's close to where it is for me i'd have this almost smack dab in the middle if i were to rank all of them all of the 26 or whatever however many there are there is another one that no one's seen yet of course this would probably be like number 14 or 15 for me it's far from the worst but i i also think it's it's almost equally far from the best
1: too yeah now now I i have a question for you because i was thinking about this If an actor like Roger Moore had starred in this exact movie, would you like it more or less? Or like Pierce Brosnan or Daniel Craig or whoever, if it was the exact same movie, just the different actor...
0: No, I don't think so. I like the seriousness while still being a little goofy that Connery gives it. I don't think my problems with the movie tonally are with the actor or with the performance. It's more just presentation of certain scenes.
1: That's pretty much where I fall as well. It's it's just the presentation of scenes. And I think you're right in saying that Goldfinger was the first Bond movie to really get the pacing right of Absolutely. what a Bond movie should be. Because even
0: though From Russia with Love is great, it might even be better than Goldfinger, it is the first almost hour of that movie has like one action scene. It's very, very slow until the second half is very action-packed.
1: With all that, I totally agree with you. And again, I've told you that my my ranking of Doctor No has fallen a few pegs. But I still will also hold by my opinion that this is the pattern or mold that all Bond movies will follow. Though the pacing isn't perfect, and though there are some silly things in it that you and i've both pointed out it is from this movie that all other bond movies follow though they did change camera time given to certain things you know like trailing or following somebody usually now in bond movies the last like 20 odd minutes 30 minutes is the bad guy is it is the arch villain and his plan and then bond stopping him you know, as opposed to this the last movie, 90 like the last seconds yeah <laughs> it's, exactly it's very yeah. rushed my issue with this movie mainly comes from it feeling so rushed it's the pacing, but only really at the end. Only really at the end. And then and then all the questions that were left with, like, who is Dr. No? Why is he doing this? What are these things for? There's just like a lack of answers to all these questions.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a good movie if, if I've sounded like I've been too negative on it. It's just because I know the potential that this series has. I've seen the heights that it eventually reaches, and I hold this...
1: Yeah, like diamonds are forever.
0: Far. Yeah, oh god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. diamonds are forever <laughs> is the extreme in the wrong direction, but
1: So Patrick, I uh, I guess that concludes our uh, thoughts on Doctor No. We both think it's uh, it's a fine movie, maybe a bit of pacing issues. But let's move on to a movie that we also think is well,
0: this movie has problems. You know, I'm not really too. sure what to think on it. This movie has, some, <laughs> has yeah. some major problems, but it is a Wes Craven picture. He's one of my favorite horror directors, the creator of An on Elm Street, the director of Scream, the director of The Hills Have Eyes, The Last House on the Left. In 1989, he did the movie Shocker, which is, <laughs> I kind of see it as. It's very similar to A Nightmare on Elm Street in a lot of ways, and its I think it might be kind of his attempt to kind of make another Nightmare on Elm Street, maybe seeing what money that series is bringing in with these sequels that get increasingly goofier and thinking like, oh man, I shouldn't have sold the sequel rights or something like that. So Shocker opens with what we don't get in Dr. No. We get a kick-ass theme song, yeah, you know, like you know, named Shocker. <laughs> And this this is all playing while we see someone working on electronic equipment. We don't see his face. This is it's actually very similar to the opening scene of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we see these on on television. We see this news broadcast about a serial killer who they just call the slasher. And a keen eye will Mm -hmm. note that one of the victims is Heather Langenkamp, the lead actress from A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I'm taking the internet's word on that because I can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, let's talk talk a bit about the song uh, what did you think of it
1: it was great it was great I loved it
0: oh I think I it's think fantastic it's,
1: I, it's amazing I'm not
0: yeah. I'm not a fan of heavy metal whether it's from the 80s or not a lot of people love 80s metal or just metal in general, I've never gotten into it. I don't know why it's so closely associated with horror movies. And I, and I have no idea why this movie went with like a metal soundtrack, but I do like this opening song. Actually, it's by a band called Dudes of Wrath, which was a super group that may or may not have been formed just to do this song, but it has members of Kiss, of Motley Crue, Dio, and Van Halen, and Whitesnake. So it's got members of all those <laughs> bands, you know, combining together to create this Mozart worthy track.
1: And it's actually
0: written. It's actually (laughs) co-written by someone who's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. This person's name is Desmond Child. He wrote hits like "You Give Love a Bad Name," "Living on a Prayer," "I Hate Myself for Loving You." So, if you're really into that kind of that '80s hard rock slash heavy metal, you'll probably get a kick out of this song and maybe the movie as a whole. Following this opening scene, we meet our main character, Jonathan Parker, who's a college star running back. He's played by Peter Berg. Yeah. (laughs) i actually uh, yeah i i i'm not the biggest fan of this actor at least in this movie i don't think he actually does a bad performance but there's just something i don't like about him i don't know
1: yeah well i mean it's really hard to
0: put my finger on
1: we just don't like the look of him but it's not that he's a bad actor we just don't like the look of him
0: yeah i don't know he just kind of looks like yeah i don't know at any rate, we see him at football practice and there's this kind of comedy scene where he gets laid out by a teammate when he's showboating to his girlfriend and then later on he makes a nice play but gets laid out by the goal poles for so running right into it again because he's looking at his girlfriend. And this is where we get a pretty sloppy yeah. scene of his girlfriend Allison played by Camille Cooper who uh, comes up to him and talks to him and, and the whole thing yeah. is like he's probably suffering a concussion so he, I think he pretends to not know who she is at this point nevertheless it's an excuse for her to explain or to explain the dynamics of their relationship yeah that they've been dating on and off for a long period of time and that they haven't slept together
1: yeah and again and this scene is only confusing because of this concussion element where we don't know if he actually doesn't know who she is yeah You know what I mean? And you're like, oh, wait, is this his girlfriend? Because we've never seen this character before.
0: It's not the best writing, and that's one thing I really like about Wes Craven movies, typically, is there's really strong writing, but this doesn't always come across, you know, scene to scene, but I think his movies are usually really well-structured. His scripts are. And he's got a lot of interesting ideas going into even his weaker movies, and that's the case here. Not that this is necessarily a weaker movie, but there are some interesting ideas in this movie. So, Allison and Jonathan head home or to Jonathan's home where she I guess lives and there's some like kids that are walking behind them and like disappear into this kind of staticky effect and then Jonathan sees a television repair truck outside his home and hears screaming so he rushes inside he sees his mom and his sister being threatened by this man with a knife who also has a limp and when Jonathan tries to intervene he wakes up in bed from a nightmare in with Allison. His side.
1: We should point out quickly that at the beginning, when the camera was panning across all the television repair stuff, while the Shocker song was playing, we did see this serrated knife covered in blood yeah. that this man is also holding.
0: Yeah, it's a massive knife. You know, a crocodile Dundee would be proud.
1: <laughs> That's not a knife.
0: Yeah, it's not not quite a machete, but it's sizable. It's, it's like the scream knives. Those like It's like a hunting knife kind of thing, I think.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Anyways, after Jonathan wakes up, he gets a phone call from his dad, who's a police lieutenant saying that his mother and his sister were killed. So he goes over there, and you know, he's sad, he meets with his dad, and this is when we find out that he's a foster child, that this isn't his biological dad, this wasn't his biological mother that died. I don't think we really know if it's biological. Well, it's not his biological sister. I, maybe she's a foster child as well, it doesn't really matter. But once that's yeah. introduced, you kind of know where the story's headed, at least I did. It's like, why, yes, why yeah. you point out that these aren't his real parents unless his real parents are going to tie in in some way but at any rate he's meeting with his dad at a bar and he mentions that he knows exactly how it happened because he saw it in a dream and his dad you know thinks he's nuts but when he describes exactly what he saw it fits the description of the crime scene that he wasn't there to see so his dad thinks okay maybe he's onto something
1: i don't know if you mentioned but when he goes up to the house he sees this television repair van and it says pinker's television repair on it
0: yeah. The the van said, yeah, Pinker's repair, Pinker's television repair. So he gives that information to his father and his father and him and a bunch of cops go over to the television repair place. The dad breaks in and the cops kind of wander around inside and then start getting killed off one by one. And there's yeah, a... I,
1: I really like this scene. Yeah. Oh, it's
0: pretty great. This is really tense it's really bloody and gory and violent too when we get to that like one of the cops outside gets their throat slit and it is one of the best throat slits i've ever seen in a movie it's it's insane
1: yeah i mean and even inside the building uh yeah one of the cops is like pulled behind this false yeah there's like a, one of something. those like
0: revolving door kind of things kind of like in young frankenstein yeah yeah <laughs> how they and, get to the lab
1: uh, yeah Pinker takes this cop and kills him while Jonathan and his father, uh, Lieutenant Parker, are looking for this other cop. You just see this big pool of blood start seeping under this Mm -hmm. false door, which is a great shot. I, I really liked it.
0: Yeah, so eventually it's just Jonathan and his father that are left. And then this is uh, where we see the news talk about the case once again. And this is actually kind of thematic to how so much of our information we learn from the television, because at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. this is a movie that's trying to say something about television consumption. I think it's because it's a bit muddled, but they mentioned that, which I don't think they would talk about this because it's an open investigation, but whatever. They mentioned that Jonathan Parker is the one that had the information that led them to Horace Pinker's repair shop, so Pinker seeing yeah. that is like, okay, I'm gonna get him now. But he doesn't actually get him. He instead gets his girlfriend. He breaks into their house after Jonathan leaves her practice and Allison, when she's in the bathroom, is attacked when Jonathan comes back to the crime scene the bathroom is just covered in blood it is absolutely disgusting the place is just <laughs>
1: yeah I mean like she's in a she's in a tub that's just full of like blood yeah I, I'm not sure if it's supposed to be water and blood but it's disgusting and, like it's just like her head yeah and her hand sticking out you know.
0: And supposedly, and I, I almost have a hard time believing this, but part of me, okay, I can kind of see it. Supposedly, Wes Craven said something like the, the MPAA really went after this movie and they had to cut so much of the stuff. So I think, think I saw something like the blood and the gore and the violence that we see in this movie is only about like 20% of what was supposed to be in the movie, which I have a hard time believing in terms of just how much blood we actually see. But a lot yeah. of the killings are done off screen at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm
1: maybe one or no sorry there's i think there's about four or five killings on screen there there are several but it's 15 people who are killed yeah
0: oh and i uh forgot to mention but in the previous scene the last scene we had of jonathan and allison when allison was alive spoilers it's not the last scene the two to have together is uh (laughs) he gave her a necklace to celebrate like their anniversary of their going out for like a year or whatever and then written in blood at the crime scene is happy anniversary, Jonathan, or something along those lines. So Jonathan gets together with one of his football teammates, Rhino, and they're in, he has a plan to get at Pinker. He's going to fall asleep, find him in his dream, a la Freddy Krueger, and then tell the cops where to go. He finds him threatening a family in some apartment building, and when he wakes up, he and Rhino head there as well, and the, and the cops show up at the same time. A chase ensues and Jonathan chases Pinker up onto the roofs of the roofs of these buildings. This is not our only rooftop chase in the movie. It's probably the more exciting one though, at least for me. Oh yeah, for sure. Pinker and Jonathan end up fighting. And the cops get there to arrest Pinker, and while he's being arrested, he continues to taunt Jonathan over the death of his girlfriend.
1: Yeah, and then this is where Jonathan kind of says to his dad after they apprehend Pinker, he's like, I want to watch him fry. You know, I want to go to his execution.
0: That's right, yeah. And so we skip ahead on the day of his execution by electric chair, and a priest shows up to give, you know, the final, the (laughs) last rites to Pinker. And this is kind of a strange scene because he just like turns the corner and just immediately Pinker's. There doing some kind of ritual with the television he's like electrocuting <laughs> himself it looks very silly it's so abrupt
1: it's weird because you're right it is silly because it's so abrupt but like as they're walking up to his cell the i think the priest asks did he want anything for his last meal and the guy one of the guards says no i just wanted a television and then it cuts to like these cables attached to the tv and pinker's like electrocuting himself and on the floor are like these black magic-y looking candles yeah and- I mean,
0: this movie has been considered by many to be a horror comedy. I struggle to kind of consider it that it's definitely satirical, but there Mm. aren't that many comedic moments. There's two big ones. And then this is kind of like more, I don't know if it's intentionally funny or unintentionally, maybe it's both. I don't know. But at any rate,
1: you're right. And there are only a few comedy scenes in this movie. And I guess the second one you're probably thinking of is at the beginning, right? Where he runs into the goalpost. Well, that's that's like, I can remember
0: that scene, a lot of times, I mean, that's separate from the horror. I'm talking about there are two scenes where the comedy and the horror really mix. Because you have a lot of horror movies that has a lot of comic relief and stuff when scary stuff isn't happening, and so I don't yeah. count that first scene really against the horror comedy label.
1: This movie's a bit of a strange case because it feels like so many different genres are kind of, not really shoehorned into this movie, but sometimes it feels that way.
0: Yeah, the movie's messy. I, I Though I do like it a lot, it's not too polished. And I don't know how much of that is this movie, at least in in terms of the violence, was chopped to pieces, you know, so that it could be released as a rated R movie. They might have cut a lot of other stuff that would have made it all more kind of cohesive together.
1: The movie's a bit of a strange duck in that sense. Because some of it really works and some of it doesn't, but I mean, I guess we'll get to the ones that work and and don't I guess (laughs) later on in the movie. But so far, it, it feels like a movie that started out as like a college comedy, and then swiftly took a a turn to slasher horror or something
0: yeah and then it becomes satirical towards the end and i would call this a slasher movie and even right after this kind of goofy scene where he electrocutes himself with the television it almost immediately goes to something terrifying when he when he's knocked on the ground and the two prison guards are like someone needs to give him mouth to mouth yes he leans in and he like bites off the guy's lip and then he bites off the other guards like two two of his fingertips it's horrific it's really violent and it's looks amazing
1: (laughs) oh yeah it does it does
0: but at any rate he uh pinker is taken to the electric chair jonathan and his dad and probably family members of other victims are all there to see it the guy who's about to execute him says something like you know usually i feel really bad about this but today i feel like we're really getting justice great line yeah But before they electrocute him, Pinker, again, directed at Jonathan, taunts him, and this time, not so much about the girlfriend, but but about Jonathan's past. He Mm -hmm. heavily implies here, if not outright states, that Jonathan is his son and that he he doesn't remember because who knows why, because of trauma or whatever, but that Pinker used to beat his wife until one day I think she brought in a gun and then Jonathan took the gun after she was killed and shot Pinker, which it, it shot him in the knee, which is what gives him his limp.
1: Yeah. And again, I was confused the first time I watched this and you kind of cleared it up for me, but I was confused because right after Jonathan asks his foster father, he says, is, is that true? And he goes, no. Well, I don't know. He knows you're adopted. Yeah. So he I, yeah. His father
0: has a good save in that, like, you know, oh, he, you've, you've been talked about on the news. He heard you're adopted. So he's going to. Mm-hmm say that to mess with your head but i think we understand right away that okay that's the truth and i'm just kind of amazed that the movie only gave the whole foster kid thing about 15 minutes to breathe before we learn it's more than 15 minutes but it's not something that comes up at the end of the movie which is where you'd think you would we would get this reveal yeah at any rate, they electrocute pinker but it doesn't seem to work at first because the electricity just kind of goes haywire and then pinker He's doesn't appear to be dead, and a doctor or a nurse or whatever, a doctor, a female doctor, goes up to him, checks on him, and he electrocutes her, and then he disappears. And so there's panic around, and everybody's looking for him. Jonathan and his father end up finding him, and then the body falls to the ground and starts on fire and just kind of disintegrates. And Which you're... I really
1: like that. I don't know how they did that effect, but that, that oh was great. yeah.
0: Yeah, there's some good effects in this movie. And again, I'm, I'm curious Sur- how many t- were... I was
1: surprised by it. <laughs> and
0: and I'm, you know, I'm curious how many were, you know, removed. But at any rate, two cops are r- rushing the doctor, the electrocuted doctor, to the hospital. And Jonathan still thinks something's wrong. He thinks Pinker has somehow survived. And he's proven right when the doctor gets up, attacks the two cops, twisting one of their heads like completely around, and then forcing the one who's driving to crash into like a nitroglycerin truck or something. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah. Uh, Jon- a big explosion. So Jonathan looks and sees the explosion. He's thinking, "Oh God, Pinker's you know still there." And so everybody rushes to the crash site. The driving cop survive, but nobody sees the doctor anywhere. So Jonathan says, "You know we need to find her." He's thinking that's Pinker somehow. But we learn later that though the doctor had been possessed by Pinker, he now possesses the police officer that they're carrying away. We don't know that yet, though. We learn it soon yeah, enough. I,
1: this is also really when the movie begins, because I watched the trailer for this movie, and they really played up all the stuff that kind of comes after this. Oh, they yeah. They played up his execution, and then all the stuff that comes after this. And
0: this is what, about 40 minutes in, 35 minutes in yeah, or something? 40,
1: 48 minutes.
0: Oh, 48 minutes. If we're thinking of Pinker as Freddy Krueger, and he is similar in a lot of ways, he's a person who was a killer while he was alive, but after he's dead, still attacks people through supernatural means. Mm -hmm. All of this up to this point is what happens before the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. That movie starts here, after he's dead. Yeah. Not to compare this movie too much with A Nightmare on Elm Street, but I really do think this is Craven kind of revisiting that same idea, and I think it probably has something to do with with there being a series that he was continually frustrated with for seeing them take Freddy in a direction that he didn't really approve of, and also seeing how much money they were making that he wasn't. Yeah, I think it's frustration really from two angles there. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyways, Jonathan then has like a dream where he meets dead Allison. She's covered in blood, really gruesome looking. And she gives him back the necklace that he had given her, which we saw earlier that she was buried with. Yeah. And she's like this. I don't know. She says like Pinker's still alive. You have to get him and that this will stop him. Give you power or something like that again we're talking about this movie kind of being a few different genres or being a few different movies mixed in the necklace stuff it kind of comes out of nowhere it doesn't really fit in with what the movie's been up to this point
1: yeah and i want to point out that too that this necklace is like a silver heart it's kind of hitting you over the head with like like the love conquers all kind of motif or theme, which ties it into
0: whatever. a nightmare on elm street too coincidentally because craven had nothing to do with that movie
1: are you saying they're the same movie
0: no this movie's less gay (laughs) and i'm not saying that as a joke it's actually true anyways so jonathan wakes up he has the necklace and then there's a cop knocking at his door it's the same cop that we saw was in the car accident that is possessed by pinker and just as he's knocking on the door jonathan gets a phone call and a voicemail from his father saying that the cop that they took in is... He's disappeared. So Jonathan puts it together that this is really Pinker, and there's a chase. He's being shot at. The cop is limping. He's walking with that same limp, and that's the tell from now on. For when we see, yeah, which is who,
1: a little goofy, who's
0: but I, who's I being possessed it. by Pinker? Yeah. Oh, it's fine. It's great when we get to one character in particular, but
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So he's shooting at him, and, and they run through this park where people are like looking, like what's going on. They're not really sure what to make of it. But Jonathan's out running the guy even though he gets shot in the arm. Pinker, as the cop, decides to possess a little girl who had been going around, I think she was on like a bike or a scooter or something, or she's just walking around.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's on a little bike, I think like a tricycle. So
0: Pinker goes to possess her. And this is great. We see her limping, and it's great kid acting (laughs) with the limp. It's great. I mean, she's what? What what is she? About eight, seven? Oh yeah, yeah, maybe seven. But yeah, so and she gets in like this big like construction vehicle, like one of those big like tractor things. And as she gets up and in it and starts it, she's like.
1: Die, fucker. I'm gonna get you, fucker, or something like that. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's something along those lines. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's great. I mean, little kids swearing in horror movies, you always think of The Exorcist. I like that they did that, but went in a very different direction here where it is very comedic. It's yeah, and funny. Yeah, she's
1: like wearing like this cute little pink coat and she's got these cute little pigtails, you know? <laughs> Her face is all screwed up like yeah. pinkers, you know? She's like, she looks angry <laughs> and intense. Yeah. I'm gonna get you, fucker. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a fun performance. (laughs) Anyways, she attacks Jonathan. Jonathan is able to avoid the tractor, and he, like, throws her to the ground. (laughs) And then this is where the the girl's mother comes in and is like, what the hell are you doing? And it's like, okay, this scene's definitely going for comedy. And then he remembers what his girlfriend had said, so he throws the necklace on her. And the spirit of Pinker leaves her. We see it leaving her. It's like this kind of staticky television look to it. It's kind of an interesting effect. It's it's almost like staticky
1: electricity or something. Or Or just static electricity, actually
0: and it leaves her it goes into the mother which i don't understand the point of this because then almost immediately after pinker possesses the mother he then possesses a construction worker who's come to see what the matter was anyways the construction worker like right away you see him you're thinking like okay this is a cameo or something because the guy's just massive he's like this bodybuilder type kind of a scary guy huge and i'm thinking like that's a wwf guy isn't it But no, it's Alice Cooper's guitarist.
1: (laughs) I don't know what he's been eating, but he's massive, honestly.
0: Anyways, once Pinker possesses Alice Cooper's guitarist, he takes his pickaxe, takes the necklace, and flings it with the pickaxe into the lake, which is in the park. And then Jonathan, I guess, gets away. His dad informs him that like, hey, a bunch of people saw you running from a cop (laughs) in the park. And it's like, you're probably under arrest. So he goes to his his teammate Rhino and then two other guys. There's a student coach named. I don't remember the character's name, but it's Ted Raimi with his goofy glasses. And then his other coach, Pac-Man, is Ted Raimi. And then his maybe his head coach. What was his name? Oh, Cooper. His coach's name is Cooper.
1: Cooper and Pac-Man.
0: And so he has a plan to get the necklace back. He apparently has a diving suit in his home. Don't ask questions. <laughs> and uh, and he has Pac-Man and Cooper go and get the diving suit to bring them to him and Rhino in the park. But when they don't arrive, he has to go back to his own home. He had been avoiding it for fear of being arrested, and he finds that... Cooper's possessed by Pinker and Pac-Man is dead. Yeah.
1: And then bloodily so Cooper
0: dead. starts <laughs> Cooper starts attacking him, and this is when Ghost Allison shows up, not in the dream this time. This is a tangible ghost, I guess. She shows up and she and Jonathan try to get Cooper to fight back against Pinker, which he does successfully, but only insofar as he kills himself. which does not kill Pinker as we see Pinker escape into an outlet. He plugs himself in. His two fingers kind of form prongs for an outlet, so that's that's pretty neat.
1: Well, I I like that, but again, this is kind of going, there's no rhyme or reason to how any of this works because, as you said, We'll get to that for sure. We'll talk about that later.
0: Anyways, so then Jonathan's dad shows up, he was it he flicks on a light switch and gets shocked yeah right Just something like that oh because the house has been trashed at this point yeah part.
1: so he picks up a lamp that had been knocked off a table and he goes to turn it on and he gets yes
0: and then he starts limping and we realize okay he's possessed so he's arresting jonathan and he's ready to take him in and that's when rhino shows up to help him escape mm-hmm. and jonathan takes off running the cops grab rhino to hold him and then jonathan's dad goes after him he's chasing him with his limp into kind of the city and again onto rooftops and eventually onto like a broadcast tower yeah this scene has a couple like fake out (laughs) oh i'm sorry jonathan i've this is me and or maybe there's only one here but we get one with cooper but bottom line is we see too many of those kind of fake outs like oh jonathan i've been able to fight him back yeah and then jonathan gets close and then oh no he, that was just a trick by pinker but then jonathan's dad says something about him having a weak heart and i think that makes pinker want to get out of his body because i think if jonathan's dad were to die pinker i'm assuming would also die but at any rate it's it's kind of a muddled moment movie to be honest Yeah,
1: and even more so because what does jonathan say he's like i didn't know you had a bad heart and he goes neither did i or something like that no no
0: he said he said neither did pinker
1: oh oh that's what he said so he
0: he he uses this information knowing that jonathan will know it's a lie but then Jonathan didn't know it was a lie because because <laughs> he, he's like, wait, I, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't know about that. Like, no, if you know it's a lie, you should be like, oh, I know. I see what you're doing here. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, at any rate, Pinker crawls out of his body and into the television satellite. So is, in theory, broadcast throughout the entire town, country, state, who knows. Yeah. Cooper's and Pac-Man's deaths are officially labeled as suicides but jonathan and rhino meet with their other teammates and say guys this wasn't the case i need you all to do something he tests them with breaking into the power plant and cutting power at exactly midnight mm-hmm. and we don't really know much else of the plan jonathan does contact some like wannabe television news anchor and says like here i've got this story for you i'll bring you the killer." five minutes to midnight just keep the camera rolling and you'll get a you know an anchor position anywhere you want basically but that's kind of all we know so far and then probably the most confusing scene of the movie is jonathan falls asleep (laughs) in his dream he's back at the lake getting the necklace but it is his dream
1: we don't actually see him fall asleep i think we watch him wake up and we realized that it was a dream because I genuinely thought he was back okay. at the lake, and I was like, "What's, what's going on?" Yeah, because he's
0: back at the lake, and then all these ghosts show up. It's
1: it's like the thirty-six. It's not like just Allison
0: this time. It's Pac-Man. It's Cooper. It's his foster mother and sister. Yeah, and they're all telling him like, "Go get him" or whatever. You know, kind of little words of encouragement. And while this is happening, while he sleeps in bed, Pinker crawls out of the television again with that same kind of staticky effect, and he looks around for places to go. Anyways, then Jonathan wakes up and he goes and sits on his chair, his electric massage chair, vibrating massage chair. Yeah. And then the chair attacks him, and this is pretty cool. <laughs> the comes a lot. out of the chair. I like it's, the- it's, it's it's great. I
1: like the uh, leather ripping, and you could see his eyes. <laughs> that was oh terrible. yeah! Oh, the
0: eyes the eyes were a bit silly, but I I mean I like the these effects overall. It was fun. So the two of them fight and pinker jumps into the television jonathan then follows so they're both basically being broadcast on television channels but they're also fighting and this is where the movie officially goes off the rails (laughs) i mean we had already kind of been dangerously close to that and i here's the thing i don't mean this is a bad thing in this might be the most enjoyable scene of the movie
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: But it is completely off the rails. This is when the two are fighting. There's like a hard rock song playing. They go, they appear in so many different things on television. They're It's kind of a chase, kind of a fight. They're in a boxing ring, you know, during a boxing match. They're in some old black and white movie. They're in... Frankenstein the Boris Karloff movie featured in our last episode and then eventually they're fighting on set of the news broadcast that's talking about Pinker Mm -hmm. which is really fun (laughs) they're like fighting on the desk and then they kind of like slip away and the news anchor's like did you did you guys get that (laughs) and then they jump out of a tv into the home of like some kind of there's some fat family who's like looking for the (laughs) remote because Jonathan grabs the remote. The fa- This They're scene, all like I mean, again, and, like, like
1: sausages and stuff.
0: Yeah. Like the scene with the little girl, <laughs> this is very clearly a comedy scene. And I think this part, this part with the family, is the weakest comedy in this scene, but overall, I think the scene's very enjoyable.
1: Yeah, I mean, like this.
0: But yeah, this scene's just a little weird, uh, this part of it.
1: Yeah. But
0: Jonathan grabs a. The television remote yeah. at any rate, right?
1: Yeah, right out of the woman's hand. And that's when she goes, I've heard about audience participation, but this is crazy or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a laugh track line and it's, yeah, it's not very good. But anyways, they slip back into the television, continue fighting. They end up coming out in the bedroom of, I think, Jonathan's sister, which is where Pinker killed the mother and sister. Mm-hmm. They're there fighting, and this is when. Oh, and then the, the wannabe news anchor is filming this. But then when he's like, "Oh my god, it's really Pinker. We should go. Like we could die." Yeah, they just leave they the but camera they leave running. the camera running. Yeah. So this fight continues, and this, at this point the scene's kind of calming down a bit because I think the rock music has stopped, and we get score here. Mm-hmm. But. Jonathan uses the remote on Pinker, pauses him, and then, in sort of a proto Wii Nintendo Wii fashion, <laughs> he kind of moves the remote around, and it sends it sends Pinker in all sorts of directions. So he's running into walls and stuff like that.
1: You hear that, Nintendo? We got a case against you. Yeah,
0: him. <laughs> yeah, we're on to you, Nintendo. You owe Wes Craven's Estate a lot of money.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: Because Wes Craven, of course, passed away a few years ago. I suppose no more fun time to bring that up than now, you know? No,
1: exactly.
2: Not
0: as recent, not as fresh as Sean Connery, but painful nonetheless. I think he was a fantastic filmmaker. He was fantastic for the genre of horror as a whole.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. But,
0: anyways, so with Pinker paused, and though Pinker's paused, he can't move. He can still, like, talk and stuff. Jonathan is like, okay, my friends are cutting the power in five minutes so you're going to be stuck here forever when that happens and i don't know why he knows that but whatever especially <laughs> because he's been in and out of television yeah airwaves at this point wouldn't maybe that would kill him too but none of this really makes sense and it's not important but then pinker's like wait a second your watch is broken or something and then the, and then rhino and the gang do cut the power and that gives pinker his freedom of movement back so the fight continues. Jonathan lays him out with a punch to the face, which sends him back to the falling back to the bed. And is that when he just jumps through the yeah? Thing? Yeah,
1: then he jumps through the uh, the the oh yeah, and then television uh, camera yeah, or whatever.
0: And then Jonathan puts the necklace on the television camera that again left over from the news, and then it's a running start and dives through it.
1: <laughs> yeah, dives through the lens.
0: <laughs> and then ends up in his room in his home and. The television like explodes and you hear Pinker trying to get in, but he can't get in. And so Jonathan turns the television off. And then just to finish up before we talk a bit more about this climax in this movie as a whole, with the power out throughout the neighborhood, Jonathan wanders outside while his neighbors are coming around outside and they're like, hey, we saw you on the tube. Was that real? And he's like, yeah. And he kind (laughs) of looks up at the stars and, you know, he makes sure Allison's there looking with him. Yeah. So that's shocker.
1: Well, it was certainly a shocker, Patrick. I enjoyed it.
0: It's it's a shame this wasn't paired with Goldfinger, with that one <laughs> line.
1: <laughs> shocking. Positively shocking. Yeah, well, I mean... No, I mean,
0: this movie's all over the place, but I think mostly for, for good.
1: Yeah, for better. I, I agree. And I mean, like, and I guess coming off that, I kind of want to start talking about the climax. I really enjoyed it, but this climax kind of fell into the issue that i have with other parts of the movie where you kind of have to suspend all of your notions about how the world works and how things oh, absolutely. work and how stories work you know absolutely <laughs> to follow this, this
0: yeah yeah. Well, when Siskel and Ebert talked about this movie, I bring this up because this is kind of an interesting little thing that they did on at the movies. Siskel, who's n- normally very, very negative on movies with a lot of violence, and this movie has that, thought this was just a blast. He really enjoyed it. He thought he enjoyed the satire. Ebert didn't like it that much, and his big complaint was that there were no rules. The movie didn't set up any rules, so we weren't mm-hmm. sure what was happening. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I think both of them are right. <laughs> I really do. There are Ebert's 100% right that there are no rules, but I think despite that I still find this to be a very fun movie. Yeah, and that yeah. that last scene is is the best probably is, is probably the best example of this because they're throwing everything at the screen. The story doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter at this point. He's in the real world when he jumps through the camera to teleport into his own home. It's like, what? How did that happen? Was it the power of the necklace? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like,
1: it, and again, I mean, because I was so confused when they came through the television into. Yeah, because the all of the stuff when they were in his television and before and
0: was very fantastical. They're over airwaves. I mean, they're they really physically fighting, but it did feel like a certain amount of, like, the rules were thrown out the window at that yeah. point. But then when they're back in reality, you expect things to be more normal because in reality too pinker doesn't have that television staticky effect around him anymore he's just a real person he does for a brief moment when he comes back i think once the news camera's on him then he just appears normal
1: he didn't really detract from the movie but it just made me really confused that final scene where his final confrontation with pinker where as you're right like pinker says your watch is two minutes slow so you have to get out of this like out of tv land essentially or you're going to be stuck here with me but they had just jumped through into the real world and had wrestled onto the bed yeah. because the TV crew that were there, the, the the news crew, had left the room. So then Jonathan had yeah. to then jump through another camera to get back to his house. Yeah, at that point downstairs. At
0: that point, jumping through the camera is. It's, it's there for the visual. It doesn't really make sense in the yeah, story, totally. and I, I do love the scenes whether someone's covered in effects, you know, in that static effect or not. People coming in and out of television sets and stuff. It all looks pretty awesome. Looks oh yeah, a great. lot different than like The Ring, but it looks
1: pretty cool nonetheless. I definitely agree with Ebert on that one. But again, I it, it didn't detract from the movie because as soon as you realize that you can't expect it to follow the rules of reality. And it's just like, oh, who gives a shit? You know? Yeah, a I mean, this movie.
0: this isn't. I mean, already and we don't we never really understand why he has these kind of dream powers or whatever but we're already suspending our disbelief right away when we get to that and then Mm -hmm. the necklace stuff the necklace stuff's never really explained either and if he sees something in a dream he sees it like it's the future but then when he's given the necklace in the dream he actually has the necklace it doesn't make that much sense but I think it's okay because the movie is a lot of fun I think the movie's winking at itself enough I think it's self aware for instance the concussion scene which neither of us really enjoyed she Allison mentions we haven't slept together I think that's there as a knowing nod like oh she's going to live because she's a virgin then she gets killed so I think the movie's playing with a few things. I think the movie is trying to say something satirically about television consumption. Again, going back to so much of the exposition that we learn is through the news. And then that ending scene, very much so, is once television no longer works, once the power's out, people go out and look at the stars and appreciate the beauty that they are. Again, I think that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing, because I don't think Wes Craven truly believes that All of that. I mean, he is a filmmaker, so it would be pretty hypocritical if he did believe it. But, (laughs) Uh, yeah, I think I think maybe he's just jealous of the Freddy's Nightmares, the Nightmare on Elm Street, the series television show going on at the time from like '88 to '89. (laughs) He's jealous of that money, (laughs) so he's gonna bash on all television.
1: I mean, was Shocker in theaters or was it like straight to television?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is I mean, this is way too violent to be straight to anything other than like HBO, especially at the time. But yeah, this was released in theaters. I don't think it did well. I think it might have made its money back, but it wasn't a big hit because I think this this is probably a movie that whether Craven anticipated it having a sequel or not. This was the late 80s when so many horror movies were sequels and everything. It had this done really well. It it absolutely would have had a sequel, whether Craven was involved or not. I mean, we, we, got a, we got a second Swamp Thing movie the same year, so they were <laughs> putting sequels on any shit, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it was all kind of, what, like, slasher and, and teens?
0: Yeah. I actually, I'll bring this up because I, I don't think this movie falls victim to this, but late 80s slasher movies tended to be a lot more sanitized than earlier 80s. You get a lot more people surviving mm-hmm. the movies than you did in Jason Takes Manhattan, both the main girl and the boyfriend survive spoiler and uh i think in one of the nightmare on elm street sequels from the late 80s like only like three people die or something like that there was also because the MPAA had cracked down there was a lot more violence that was cut so those movies tended to be a lot tamer than the early 80s when people were able to get away with a lot more and I think Mm -hmm. this movie to be fair apparently a lot of it was cut it still gets away with quite a bit it is a very very bloody movie again there's not that much on-screen violence what we do get is pretty great though I mentioned that throat slit is is
1: And, you know, And all the stuff with Allison covered in blood is great. Oh, yeah. The cops being killed at the beginning, that was great. And I also really like when Pac-Man's body fell out of the closet, just covered in blood. To kind of move on to just the movie as a whole, I think I enjoyed it. And I only say I think I enjoyed it because maybe I need to watch it like a third time. I didn't like how the movie really started 48 minutes in. Oh, I
0: see. You you but wanted more supernatural. You wanted him to be a supernatural killer yeah. from the beginning. I see. I think that's fair.
1: I would have liked maybe to see the, the, I mean, to hear news reports and stuff of the killer. Pretty much the way the movie opened, I, I really enjoyed you hear Baxter on the killer, what's going on, how many people How many people he's killed, which I think at the beginning it was like 30 or something.
0: Yeah, I don't remember the number. It's a lot. And he kills more people that in the middle of the movie after he comes back as yeah, a yeah. television ghost that we don't really see, again, we hear about through the news reports.
1: I would have been fine if, if it could have worked out where he somehow met Jonathan and he killed Jonathan's girlfriend, Allison, and... He was electrocuted. If that happened in like the first twenty minutes, and then the rest was Pinker being this supernatural electric ghost, I think maybe that have, would have another. The movie s- you a bit could more. probably
0: add another set piece in there in you know, some kind yeah. of Pinker possessing someone kind of thing.
1: All the TV stuff was great, and the possession stuff was great. And if they had like more possession, like they did at the park, right? Not necessarily comedic, but like something like that. I think it's great because because there's that one point where when they were running through the park, Jonathan turns and tells Pinker, he's like, oh, you possessed the wrong cop, you know, he's super out of shape. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's taunting
0: him, kind of like how Pinker had taunted him a little bit.
1: So then Pinker looks up in the cop's body and there's a jogger who he shoots. Oh, that's right, yeah, <laughs> we forgot about The this. jogger's body, yeah, then the jogger runs up to the little girl. I really liked that aspect of it, and also the whole TV hopping thing. Those
0: two scenes really do stand out for a couple of reasons. One, they're the, just the most exciting scenes, they're fast-paced, but they're also far and away the funniest scenes too
1: oh yeah for sure
0: like you compare those scenes where there is horror stuff happening in them horror slash action stuff happening in them with the scene at the television repair shop again this is before pinker's supernatural mm-hmm. that scene's com- played completely straight it is is scary and it's yeah. brutal it's violent it's the most violent scene of the movie and so there there is a disconnect between pre-television Pinker and post-television Pinker I guess the movie has a bit of a different tone even though we had that opening scene that's kind of or the scene where we meet Jonathan's kind of comedic it's the movie does become more of a comedy once pinker's a television ghost i suppose
1: it's kind of comedic too in the sense that everybody he possesses has that exaggerated limp which i liked i thought that was yeah that was the best with the girl oh yeah it was fantastic and she did that so well like dragging her foot (laughs) through this gravel i just love yeah I don't know if we mentioned Pinker is played by what's his name Mitch Pelegi. Mitch Pelegi. I don't know he was
0: Yeah, we didn't mention his name. He I th- I think it's a fun performance. He's yes, Yeah. I mean he's fun, like he's I wouldn't say he's funny per se, but he's not he's a little goofy. He's not all that serious, but at the same time he is pretty scary too.
1: He is, yeah. At the beginning he's more scary than goofy and you know as as we've pointed out already, by the end it's Yeah, he gets goofy. some
0: one-liners later on.
1: Yeah, like uh, what was it, when he was about to be electrocuted and he's like, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I didn't necessarily enjoy all of the comedy, but I appreciated all of the attempts at comedy throughout the movie, I guess. The shame
0: is you, you cannot top the all-time television horror movie kill pun which is freddy krueger saying welcome to prime time yeah. bitch yeah before he smashes a woman's face into a television from a nightmare on elm street 3 you can't top that unfortunately because I- that's a great moment and this movie almost seems like a an hour and 50 minute an hour and 40 minute version of that scene because it's got that same kind of horror slash goofy tone and it involves a television obviously and a dream killer yeah. kind of killers not really associated with dreams but dreams are still involved So, Jim, final thoughts on Shocker?
1: Uh, I thought it was a fun movie. I thought it was a really great movie to watch. And it's, like, one of those movies you can put on and watch with friends when you're all having a drink. If you have any. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't have any, so I'll never do that. Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't know. I kind of don't like that it starts essentially halfway through the movie. I don't mind the whole, like, suspension of all your... Of all like real-world things. But other than that, I mean, yeah, it was fine. It was a good movie. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm glad you picked it.
0: Oh, I did. was put it on a list. We picked it by random, <laughs> but yes.
1: Well, thank you, random at...
0: Thank you, Google random number generator. <laughs> so that's Shocker. Now we've reached the time of the podcast where we discuss how these movies stack up as a drive-in double feature.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I have some opinions, but I think I'm going to let you go first.
0: Okay. Well, let's start with the obvious. Shocker is a good second feature. Mm Mm-hmm. It's clearly the second feature. It's though it was released by if not a major studio, there was actual money behind it. I mean, it's a decent looking movie. It's not some cheapo thing. It's pretty violent. It's got a lot of humor, and I think those are some of the things that I'm looking for in my second feature, which I'm not going to be taking as seriously as the first one of the night.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, Doctor No has to go first if this was to play at a at a drive-in because it is this more Absolutely. serious movie. With kind it? of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has that tongue-in-cheek element, but, that's, but it's also like 1962 tongue-in-cheek. It's very different. Exactly. Songs.
0: I think most I think most of the goofiness, especially at the end, is unintentional, and it's just because the f- movie's dated. Yeah, exactly. Because the genre has changed so much. The action spy genre has changed.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I totally agree with you. Shocker comes second. And yeah, I mean, Shocker's definitely a movie to end a night with.
0: I mean, you get that kick-ass theme song in the opening, which is great. Which, this is a rare pairing. I'm sh- I mean, this is the first Bond movie we've done i'm sure going forward this will be a rare pairing where a james bond movie is matched up with another movie and the other movie has the better title song yeah yeah that's going to be unheard of moving forward in the series i'm sure yeah i think the where this maybe doesn't function that great as a double feature is i don't think dr no is a strong entry Mm -hmm. i not not to say it's a bad movie again we've discussed that it's it's a fine movie it's got some issues but it is pretty dry and it's dull for a movie that you're looking for in 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 a drive-in setting
1: yeah and i mean like i could just imagine myself being a little bored sitting there in my car for like a two-hour movie
0: yeah it's a little heavy on plot and then when you actually get down to it there isn't that much plot either
1: you're just kind of left going why (laughs) you know (laughs) dr no more like dr why come on you know
0: So, but how, how did these movies stack up together, specifically?
1: Well, together specifically, I mean, I don't, I don't know, they were just so completely different. I just don't think they work well.
0: I think the, you know,
1: the first movie,
0: Dr. No, certainly you know? with as slow as it is, it leaves you wanting something more fast-paced for the second one. And that is what we get. But at the same time, I don't feel these movies are truly complementary. I think we're of like mind here.
1: One question, though, would be if Shocker, I mean, because Shocker has to go second, what would you put in front of Shocker for like an ideal drive-in experience, I guess?
0: Oh, yeah, I think I think probably a lot of horror movies would work. Maybe pick one that's a bit more serious, less satirical than this, but I don't think it has to be The Exorcist. I think it can be something a little goofier than that.
1: No, Now, do you think you know, something like, an, like Hush? Like The
0: Omen work? or maybe Hush,
1: yeah, that might work. I mean, I was just thinking about movies we've done
0: that would work well because Hush is again an emotional roller coaster. you want some comic relief mm-hmm. you want some levity after that and that's what Shocker gives you even though we do get plenty of violence and murder still Jim which of the two did you prefer?
1: You know to be honest Patrick I uh, I hate to say it uh because I'm such a huge James Bond fan uh, I love James Bond with every fiber of my being and especially Sean Connery Rest in uh, peace I'm gonna have to go with yeah rest in peace sir but uh, I'm gonna have to go with Shocker Shocker was definitely more enjoyable. I don't know if I enjoyed watching it more, but I could see myself watching it again almost You're right more after, likely I to guess, revisit no? it. You're more likely yes, to revisit
0: yeah. it in the near future. I see.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a killer workout, but uh, No, it's
0: that's it. yeah, you shouldn't feel shame for picking any movie <laughs> over Doctor No after you picked Killer Workout over the, one of the best <laughs> movies the last best horror movies <laughs> the last 5 years. No,
1: it's so good. Although, that emphasizing.
0: We're definitely of of like mind on Dr. No, and I've been probably even more negative than you on it, even though I recognize its positive qualities as well. This isn't James Bond's best outing Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. And I know maybe it's not fair to compare it to a lifetime of sequels that were all made after this, but at the same time, that's how the world works. I mean, there were 20 James Bond movies made before I was born. Like, this, I wasn't here to see this when it first came out. Maybe I would have felt a lot more positively about it, were that the case. But I do find Shocker, though it has its problems like Dr. No, is just an all-around more enjoyable, entertaining experience, as long as you don't mind a little violence, a little gore, and a little lack of a consistent story because it's it it is a muddled movie in it's what it's trying to say satirically as well as the kind of movie it's trying to be but at the same time i do think it's just incredibly entertaining
1: i think you've hit the nail on the head when you call it entertaining i think
0: dr no is is probably a better movie maybe not even probably dr no is a better movie (laughs) but shocker i agree with you it's one i'm more likely to revisit it's one that I saw for the first time relatively recently, and when we selected these two movies at random, I was far and away looking more forward to seeing Shocker than I was to seeing Dr. No. I think you can even hear hear that in the, in the end of the last episode when we announced uh, what <laughs> movies we were doing. And speaking of which...
1: Yeah, what do we got coming up next?
0: Revenge of the Drive-In will return with Friday the 13th, the original American classic, and Strange Brew, the Canadian classic.
1: Woohoo! My country versus yours. Take that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's New Jersey. It doesn't really count. <laughs> It'd be like if this were a Quebec
1: movie or <laughs> oh, something. No. It's like,
0: ah, you can divorce yourself from that still. Yeah, that's
1: not. that's not really Canada.
0: <laughs> Anyways, please join us next time for Friday the 13th and Strange Brew.
1: Yeah, and go out and watch uh, Dr. Noah Shocker, too. Remember
0: to follow us on Twitter for any updates, at Podcast. no underscores, hyphens, or spaces. And until next time, I'm Patrick. And I'm Jim. Thanks for joining us.